Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great pleasure to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Chris Williams. Chris wrote the book Ecology and Socialism, Solutions to Capitalist Ecological Crisis. He is a longtime environmental activist with a scientific background and has authored numerous articles on the science and politics of climate change and energy for various media outlets. He is a writer in residence at one of my favorite media outlets, truthout.org, and an educator and professor at Pace University in New York in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences. Chris Williams, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Uh, so let's start with this. What happened uh, at the climate conference in Paris? There are extremely uh, divergent reports, uh, to put it mildly. Um, yes. And, uh, I mean, I think it's been hailed as historic by the people who signed off on it and wrote it, which is essentially government leaders their advisors and actually the corporations who helped to sponsor um, the conference itself, including some of the fossil fuel corporations responsible for, largely responsible for getting us into this mess in the first place. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, which I would argue I, you know, is a more accurate representation of what actually happened, um, one can only say that this is really a historic deal if, if by historic you mean you've set the course for the planet to burn, essentially, because on the one hand, um, I think some environmentalist organizations, particularly the more, the larger, more mainstream ones, have um, seen the the 1.5 degree uh, limit that all of the 190-odd countries have signed on to, and seen that as a step forward from the 2 degrees C limit that Previously, scientists had said, well, if we go above two degrees C of average global warming over this century, then, um, and we've already gone up one uh, over the last hundred years or so, um, then that would be truly dangerous for human civilization and much of the rest of the biosphere upon which we all depend. Um, And so that was lowered to 1.5, partly under... um, new information from science and the way in which actually the climate could be more sensitive than we previously thought to changes in atmospheric composition of greenhouse gases. Um, And also partly by the pressure created by activists to say we are not going to be buried under rising seas and we're not going to continue to see deforestation and so on. We're going to fight uh, the, uh, the system as a whole until you recognize that actually the people who are paying the highest price, the poor people uh, around the world, people in the global south in particular, uh, are not going to sit by and, and let you sign off on a deal that condemns much of us to not just misery, but uh, death and mass migration and other uh, giant existential questions and issues. So on the one hand, um, if you focus on that, then you can claim it as some kind of um, victory. And, and in some sense, that's um, accurate. But then when you come to the implementation, okay, how are we going to achieve this goal? If we're no longer aiming for two, but we're Celsius above um, 
the average pre-industrial temperature that we've had for the last 10,000 years, more or less. In other words, the whole of human civilization. If um, if we're aiming for a harder target uh, to achieve, how are we going to achieve that? And there is no sense, no plan, uh, no realistic idea um, coming out of that conference as to how that could be achieved. Not even the two, because... Uh, the pledges that all of the countries put forward, there's two problems. One is um, that all of the pledges, if they do them, which is a, a giant if, if all the countries do what they say that they're going to do, then that actually puts us on track for three degrees C of warming, which would be truly catastrophic. And, um, and, and they know that, or that's your calculation? Th- they know that. Um, uh, they are aware of that, and even in the treaty itself, we actually it's not a treaty, um, it's, it's a, a voluntary set of agreements. No, no, you know, the other second large problem is nobody's going to be held accountable if they don't do the things that they say they're going to do. Um, but the Obama, um, everybody who signed on is aware that what they signed on for is this plan that, as I mentioned earlier, will set the course for the planet to um, have catastrophic um, outcomes with regard to massively shifting um, the climate regime of the last 10,000 years into some new reality. So they're aware of that, and that's why they have this um, five-year kind of check-in. How are we doing? Um, should we ratchet up our ambitions? And everybody's saying, well, we have to ratchet up our ambitions, which is kind of self-evident. Um, and yet uh, that is, I would say, highly unlikely because there's, you know, I mean, Kyoto was legally binding in 1997, and as soon as countries saw that they were not going to be able to make what they declared, they just dropped out. Um, Canada dropped out. Japan dropped out. Um, obviously, the U.S. never ratified it in the first place um, because they, they knew that they would not be able to do it. So um, I think uh, we haven't even got that in, in the new Paris Agreement that people might be, governments might be shamed into doing something they they can simply um there's lots of ways in which they can obfuscate and get away with whatever they want to get away with so i think there are huge problems i I think you mentioned somewhere that uh some categories of major uh uh outlets of fossil fuel are, are not even included at all including air travel and international shipping is that right absolutely um i mean everybody I mean, there were some people who said the the Copenhagen Accord in 2009, um, one of the previous rounds of negotiations, now six years ago, was in some ways you could argue better than Paris because at least it included, I mean, that was where the kind of two degrees limit was was first kind of proposed and taken up um, by politicians. Uh, That actually included um, air, air travel and international shipping. And this, the Paris Agreement, explicitly excludes those two areas. And why is that important? Why is that significant? Because it's been calculated that the emissions that, um, from you know greenhouse gases by those two areas are equivalent to the emissions of Germany and um, you know the fifth largest economy in the world and Great Britain combined. And those emissions are set to increase you know, with all of the new trade deals, which are completely contrary to limiting um, greenhouse gas emissions in the first place, uh, that's set to increase over the lifetime of this agreement, which only goes to 2030 anyway. 
uh, by about 350%. That's the estimate. And so if you're saying that, that those are exempt, then you're you know, giving away a huge segment uh, of um, what we should be doing with regard to, and not just emissions, but in terms of what does that mean for what you're, where the world is going with commodity production, with international trade, with ways in which you're producing goods wherever they can be most cheaply produced, regardless of the ecological or the social uh, ramifications. Um, and uh, so that's one major omission. And then, and then obviously the other major omission is nothing is said about the military, with the military, particularly the United States, being responsible for huge, um, not only vast amounts of actual death in the immediate sense, uh, but also in the indirect sense that they are responsible for a huge chunk of not just uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but also toxic waste and, um, you know, destroying the planet by dropping bombs all over it. Uh, so I think between those two areas, there are significant other limitations when you get into some of the details of the, of the uh, agreement itself. Yeah, I, I saw somewhere someone calculated, I think this was based on around 2006, including the then uh, very active war on Iraq, uh, that the United States military alone would rank 30-something uh, in a list of nations in terms of, of petroleum consumption. Does that, does that sound right to you? Yes, and um, the, it, I mean, it could be higher too, because it depends what you're doing. Uh, military jets, fly, uh, obviously not just frequently, but also very high and very fast. And that in itself is a more significant um, problem with regard to uh, global warming. Um, then there's the military bases that are all over the world. About The U.S. has about 200 or so dotted around the place. Um, oh, many the more than of, that, actually. <laughs> yeah, actually, actually, yeah, that's a, a wild underestimate. Um, the um, the amount of waste and pollution that is created by those, uh, aside from the ways in which, um, you know, 80% of the energy use by the federal government is for the Department of Defense, for example. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, so, so, so the, the Pentagon is a huge consumer of fossil fuels, and, and clearly it's it's impossible to explain the invasion of Iraq without talking about where oil is found and, and oil is directed towards the Pentagon in large quantities. So, so, so are um, we talking about something higher than three degrees once you add in uh, unrestricted militarism and air travel and international shipping? Well, um, I mean, this depends uh, on, because if they don't do anything, I mean, this is why people say, well, it's, it's better than nothing, because if they don't do anything, then we could be going up to four or five Celsius. Um, and if all these pledges are carried out, then we'll go up to three. But three is already a completely different planet and, and not in a good way in terms of um, the continuing rise of the oceans, the acidification of the oceans, uh, larger, longer droughts, um, more frequent uh, and more severe storms, uh, stronger cloud bursts with rain falling in extreme amounts in short periods of time or, or not falling. And obviously, uh, human society for the last 10,000 years has depended on agriculture as its base. And so if we can't make 
predictions about how much you know where crops are going to be be able to grow what kind of crops because we're unsure of rainfall patterns and um, there are more devastate devastating um, extreme weather events that uh, destroy crops then and floods and so on then um, that begins to create all kinds of dislocations in terms of uh, mass migrations from various parts of the world uh, the United States obviously is a country many people think is perhaps more immune than others. On the one hand, that's true because money can be provided. It's the richest country in the world. On the other hand, the climatic extremes in the United States across the continent, I mean, we're seeing all kinds of, you know, California being most famously, but North Carolina, the Northwest at the moment flooding. The wildfire season has already extended by days or weeks. Um, and so... Uh, how does this impact our ability to continue when we're continually when we're uh, having to rebuild all the time? Um, we've already had to rebuild two of the most iconic cities in the world in terms of New Orleans in 2005 after Katrina and uh, Hurricane Sandy in New York uh, in 2012. So, how many more times are you going to rebuild cities if this starts to become an annual event, for example? Um, and so. Three degrees puts us on track for that, uh, those kind of outcomes. And kind of when you go to three degrees, you're, you're pretty much headed, you, you've lost control to a certain degree of, uh, of our own destiny in terms of unless we can start bringing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere then and bringing it down as opposed to just stopping putting more of it in there, then we could be heading to four and five without us doing anything over the next um you know, two, uh, two or three hundred years. So uh, radically changing the planet to something that we haven't seen in tens of millions of years when sea levels were 120 feet higher than they, were, than they are now. So, so if it were actually kept to one and a half, you might avoid some warming feedback loops that take it out of human control, whereas if it gets to three, uh, it's going to go to four or five uh, and there's nothing you can do about it? Quite possibly, because we don't know. No, um, science is unable to answer the question because we've got no direct experience of this. And even looking into the past, um, which is our, our best indicator and, and where we've found a lot of the things that we've so far found out in terms of past climates and, and warming that we know have existed on Earth, um, then we're not exactly sure, scientists are not exactly sure how sensitive it is the climate there could be other tipping points which we're approaching as we go from two to three celsius such as um, there are massive amounts of uh, methane trapped in frozen land in the arctic and in the tundra and if that starts to um, you know the, per the permafrost starts to uh, no longer be frozen all year round then that methane, which is much more powerful than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas, will start leaking out. We've already seen signs of that, um, so that's one huge worry. The other worry is um, that uh, they're also trapped uh, under the oceans, vast amounts of methane. Uh, it's frozen. And if the, as the oceans warm, perhaps that will, those will start uh, melting, basically, turning back into a gas and bubbling to the surface. And either of those outcomes, we're talking about vast increases in um, 
global warming gases, which would be you know catastrophic over a short period of time. Yeah, and and so that you know there are some unknowns, and the, the feedback loops become self-reinforcing. You know, you you melt more ice. And that uh, exposes, in, in the Arctic, that exposes dark ocean or dark land. And so that then absorbs more heat from the sun. And then that melts more ice, which, you know, creates more dark ocean and land, which melts more ice and so on and so forth. So that's an example of a positive feedback loop where the change reinforces more of the change. If if the world weren't spending roughly two trillion dollars a year on militarism, and roughly half of that the United States alone, uh, and, and were to invest two trillion dollars a year in renewable, sustainable energy, uh, what sort of a difference could that level of spending make? Well, I think that would make a, a, a gigantic difference. Um, I mean, we're talking about $2 trillion on the military. We're talking about one of the most profitable businesses in the world, the arms industry, which the U.S. heads globally. Um, We're also talking about, um, I mean, everybody says, well, we can't afford the transition to renewable energy. We can't afford to build these wind turbines and solar panels. But we somehow managed to uh, uh, build plenty of tanks, airplanes, and battleships um, for as you mentioned, $2 trillion a year, which uh, then goes on to uh, carry out all of the wars that we're seeing around the world um, and level of instability and violence. But uh, there's another source of funding which is not reported very much, although the IMF has estimated this at several trillion dollars, the International Monetary Fund, which is subsidies and tax breaks, incentives to produce more fossil fuels. So uh, between three and five trillion dollars goes to the most profitable industries on the planet, the fossil fuel corporations, in order to have them produce more of the stuff that we need. We know we need to keep in the ground. And so between the military and between subsidies to fossil fuels, you could easily transform the world economy with regard to um, energy production in terms of the kind of new infrastructure that we would need to make uh, wind and solar viable uh, across the planet. And uh, with plenty of money left over, too. And I might and even are, throw uh, taxing multi-billionaires in there as another potential source of money. <laughs> um, I think that, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's the uh, massive decrease in taxes on the ultra-wealthy. I mean, it's, it's not surprising that uh, the wealthy have got even wealthier if you stop taxing them, and as we've done over the last 30 years or so. And then there's marketing. I mean, when you think about it, everybody says, well, everybody loves to go and buy things. Humans, we love this consumer culture. If that were true, why do they spend $1 trillion a year in the United States convincing us to spend and buy more of their uh, mostly often worthless, poorly built products, um, deliberately poorly built. Uh, and to, uh, just to give you a sense of scale, $1 trillion on, on marketing is twice the amount that's spent in the United States on all education, public and private, from kindergarten through graduate school. And so imagine if we just simply reversed that equation 
and cut marketing by half and doubled the education budget? What, what kind of schools would we be talking about here? So, so the money exists. The, it's just misdirected. The the United States even spends more per on on marketing the military per recruit than it spends on educating a student. Uh, but but that that three to five trillion dollars a year in subsidies uh, for fossil fuels, I, I wonder uh, how much of that is in the United States, and and I wonder what that says to the claims that fossil fuels. Uh, are, are continuing uh, their use because they're so profitable. Would they not be a little bit less profitable without the subsidies? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, the, the cheapest liquid that you can buy in the United States is gasoline, which, when you think about the process that goes on, you have to dig it out of the ground, perhaps in the United States, but also anywhere else in the world, ship it somewhere, refine the thick black uh, oil that can't be used for anything into all of the different products, uh, one of which is gasoline, and then ship it somewhere else to be sold um, after you've gone through that whole process. And all of this takes enormous amounts of energy, enormous amounts of capital. Think about the infrastructure that exists to do that. And yet somehow it's still the cheapest liquid you can buy, cheaper than water, um, in the country. And so... Um, even with all those subsidies, wind is now wind energy is now compatible is about the same price as um, uh, oil and gas and coal. And so um, then you have to ask the question: Well, it's true that investment in alternative renewable energy has increased, which is a good thing, but um, wind and solar are still only about one and a half percent of the total energy production in the world. And so the, the, the level of transformation that needs to happen is, is still not happening within the time frame that we have. And um, so it's a bit more than just reversing the subsidies. Clearly, there's something else that we need to be talking about in terms of social power relations that force um, not just the building of wind and solar um, plants, but also the um, stopping building, stopping exploring for coal, um, gas, and oil, because we know that 80% of what we already know exists, we can't burn, but they're still looking for more. And that is the other flaw in, in the Paris Agreement, in that there's no mention. Actually, in the 32-page document, they never mention fossil fuels once. Um, they never mention oil, they never mention gas, um, they never mention coal, but these are the things you'd have to actually stop making and digging out of the ground if you really were serious about um, keeping the earth as we've known it for all of human civilization. And, and is the problem that if you were to switch the subsidies from the dirty energy to the clean energy, that it just couldn't be made as profitable for a bunch of corrupt oligarchs, and therefore you must develop a society that's not run by corrupt oligarchs? Or or, or could it be as profitable and there's just a, a problem of inertia? I think, um, I mean, I think that they, as long as you privatize the land and control of pricing and so on, and and where the, the, the solar panels and the wind turbines are, are located and, and who gets to sell 
the the electricity coming from those. Um, as long as you control that, then there's no reason why you couldn't set up a system to be profitable under capitalism. I mean, I think it's 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 a bit more difficult, but then they managed it with. I mean, they managed to turn pollution into a tradable commodity, right? They managed to turn carbon dioxide into something they could make money from. So I'm quite sure that as in- ingenious as the capitalists are at figuring out how to fleece us, they'd work out how to market um, and sell us at a profitable rate the sun and the wind. I think it's more about the, the trillions of dollars that is uh, already invested, the sunk capital costs, in the infrastructure of the production of fossil fuels. And that infrastructure, I mean, in the United States alone, for example, and this is the other thing, we're talking mostly about electricity production. There's far less um, forward momentum on the question of uh, transportation. So almost all transportation is is gasoline or diesel or heavy fuel oil or kerosene. Um, And what is going to replace that? I mean, that's where we're talking about oil production, which currently is about 80 million barrels every day, which in itself is, I think, a staggering statistic. Every 24 hours, somewhere in the world, 80 million barrels of oil uh, are dug out of the ground um, 365 days of the year. That, that is set to increase um, by 2020 to 110 or 120 million barrels rather than decrease. So... Um, what are we doing with regard to this massively wasteful, incredibly inefficient transportation system based on uh, individual private cars uh, driven by an internal combustion engine, which is about 10% efficient? So um, I think that uh, the, I mean, as I mentioned, 180,000 gas stations in this country, hundreds of thousands of miles of pipelines. Um, massive investment in refineries, all of the shipping, giant super tankers, uh, the military there to protect those things, the uh, oil wells, um, all of that represents sunk capital costs to the fossil fuel industry and also infrastructure that the governments of various countries um, built. And, and most oil is actually owned by state uh, states as opposed to private companies. So... Um, I think it's, it's, it's about the inertia and about you've set up a, uh, an energy system based on giant centralized plants. And um, wind and solar requires a very different type of infrastructure. And so you, you, you wouldn't just be talking about changing the type of fuel that you were getting the energy from, where you were getting the energy, but you'd also be talking about, well, differences in how do you store it, how do you transport it, um, how do people use it, what size uh, power plants, is it on you know solar panels on individual houses? Is it modular? Um, is it decentralized? Is it a mix of decentralized and centralized? Uh, either way you slice that, you're going to be looking at a very different energy infrastructure and transportation network. So... We, we have like one minute left. I, I, this may be unfair to try to ask, but uh, in terms of what's happened in Copenhagen and in Paris, uh, what has Barack Obama's role been? I think um, his role is, has been to change the rhetoric, but not the reality. I think uh, he certainly sounds a lot more invested than George W. Bush. But when you look at his actual policy, all of the above, what Paris did, was replicate all of the above and expand it onto the international stage. 
So that's the Obama policy writ large. We will spend money on renewables and we will uh, set this uh, totally unrealistic goal in terms of how they're going to achieve it of 1.5 degrees C of warming. But we're going to continue to produce and ratchet up, uh, actually increase fossil fuel production. Chris Williams from truthout.org and Pace University. His book is Ecology and Socialism, Solutions to Capitalist Ecological Crisis. Chris, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.